welcome back to What the HR Podcast. I'm Jesse Novi, an HR business partner with CH Robinson. And I'm Mike Toole, HR technology consultant with SAP SuccessFactors. With another episode. Today, we're joined by Jennifer Watson, um, who is a homegrown HR professional based out of Nashville, Tennessee. She has over a decade-long career in HR, and Jennifer has done everything from recruiting to managing compliance and investigations for over 200,000 employees. She started as a teacher and an admin in the Nashville public school system before she took a chance in HR. This catapulted her career in HR and passion for developing and humanizing the HR role. When she's not working, Jennifer loves to shamelessly sing her heart out on every Jess Sims Peloton ride, feed her four and six-year-olds mac and cheese in the car on the way to various sporting practices, and regularly partake in reorganizing her whole house to match her vibe. We are so fortunate to have Jennifer with us today. We had an incredible conversation about compliance. Um, Specifically, we talked about how to run an annual compliance cycle, um, how to make sure policies are up to date and following federal guidelines, um, and really how to make compliance fun. I know you might be listening to this intro thinking, oh boy, we're going to be talking about a pretty dry topic today. But I can tell you that um, we talked about not only things that are super important, but Jennifer put a lot of energy and uh, added some great suggestions to this conversation. So whether you're new to compliance or have even you know been managing compliance for a while, I think you're really going to enjoy and get a lot out of this episode with Jennifer. Um, As always, if you're loving our episodes, please do us a huge favor. Head on over to your favorite podcast platform. Leave us a rating and review. Those rating and reviews go a long way in ensuring that our podcast episodes get out to other HR practitioners and business leaders. And as always, we so appreciate you being a listener. Enjoy the episode. All right, Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Easy way of getting started. Can you tell our audience uh, about Jennifer, where you came from, what you're doing today? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my name is Jennifer Watson. I started uh, my professional career as a teacher, seventh grade math specifically, um, and did that for three years in inner city Nashville, Uh, transitioned over to an administrator and then was recruited by a uh, now Fortune 91 company to be a um, recruiter for them. Kind of thought they were a little crazy, but I figured, hey, if I was ever going to try something new, let's give it a shot. And that led to the next nine years of my life. So I moved from recruiting to generalists to running their employee relations department to supporting supply chain, a little bit of everything. Um, And then most recently uh, joined a SaaS-based tech company based out of Nashville, where I'm the VP of HR and really kind of dug into the one woman show and building everything from the ground up. So mm-hmm. that's my story. Great. So we're going to talk about compliance today. Um, obviously, we were talking about not the most exciting thing, but we want to get some that tips and true. tricks that you've learned a lot <laughs> throughout your career. But I want to start with um, the foundation of being a teacher. I always think mm. it's interesting when somebody moves out of teaching. So I'm curious how teaching has helped you in your HR career. I, I think the reason HR or teaching helps with HR is because when you are learning to teach, you're relearning the topics. And so you almost have to think about it from a beginner level. Mm-hmm. Um, you better believe when I started teaching seventh grade math, I did not remember the slope formula. And so you have to reteach <laughs> yourself. And so I think it's kind of 
uh, always grounded me in the fact that not everybody knows everything. Not everybody has the same background. And so that applies to HR. You know, you people assume you know how to have a difficult conversation or people assume that everyone knows how to give a counseling. And so I think having that foundation to say you have to teach the same way in HR as you did in any, you know, teaching students mm-hmm. um, and then explain, re-explain and explain again, because it's not, you know, math is not natural. If you haven't done it in a while, just like HR is not natural if it's not your specialty. So yeah. I think those are kind of the two biggest things that have really helped ground me in my career. Yeah. It's funny because math is one subject that is fairly consistent, right? It's like been Mm -hmm. the same. If you know the formulas, you know the formulas, whereas when it comes to compliance, things change all the time. Um, So it it is a little bit different there. So kind of kicking us off, can you talk a little bit more about kind of your career in compliance, what you've done, and then we'll talk a little bit more about how you've been with large companies, now you're with a smaller one, Mm -hmm. um, how things are different? Yeah, I think, you know, when you hear compliance, it's (laughs) probably the last thing you want to hear. Uh, It's like, you know, your phone rings and you see it's HR. You're like, oh gosh, here we go. But I would say the first part of it is really understanding why compliance is so important. And I really did not understand that until I got into the role where I was truly managing it for a company, which can be kind of scary. Now, you're never going to know everything. You're never going to know all the laws. You're never going to have all the information. So I think, one, finding really great partners to say who are experts in that and find joy, because I do not, in reading copious amounts of articles. Um, So I think that's the first thing. And then the second thing is really understanding that while it's not sexy and fun, it is essential to making sure that you're doing right by the employees that you have, Um, whether that's establishing a policy so that you have a place for them to refer back to. You know, let's say someone acts a way that you don't agree with, you have a place to refer them to say, hey, this is kind of how we function. And then also really having that training to get ahead of it so that you are able to say, hey, when you join or every year, here's what this looks like for us. Because again, people have a million things on their plate. And unless it's your specialty, it's the last thing they're thinking about. So um, people always default back to how they were raised, where they came from, things like that. So I just think of it as a way to set people up for success, which sounds a little crazy with compliance, but it really is the foundation. And it's just like bookkeeping. You know, you, you got to have it set up before you really start getting money coming in or or you're digging out of a hole. I think of compliance as the same way. Yeah, I think of people that start businesses and I've met with a lot of business owners in my life Mm -hmm. and it's never something, I shouldn't say never, normally it's not something they care about, right? They Mm -hmm. build this business and all of a sudden now they have employees and now they have to have policies. Um, Can you talk a little bit about kind of walking into that situation where a business is already being run and there are no policies in place? Like where do you start specifically? And then from like a time perspective, is it, hey, let's get these three things up and running right away? Or like, do you know what I'm asking there? Like you're walking into a green field. Where do you start? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is to see what they have done already. You know, there's some, usually some effort to try and put some framework around it. So I would say really understanding when it was put in place, what was communicated, And then I also think, you know, you're walking into a business. So with any HR role, you can't just start throwing down your opinions. you got to figure out what's the tolerance for it. You know, where are they in their journey with 
are they on the more aggressive, hey, we're going to be the frontline leaders and what this policy looks like? Are they just trying to protect themselves? Because that's that's fine. That's great, too. I think it's understanding that first. So what's been established, understanding where the company is, and then managing what you're going to roll out from there. If you have a really forward-thinking company, maybe it's that you are rolling out policies that encourage um, facility, you know, conversation and and those are ever-changing policies. But if you're in a company that's just trying to get to profitable and this is the last thing they're thinking about, which is okay, then I think it's establishing a couple of policies, making sure there's a cycle to that everybody is acknowledging them when they come on. And then if there is a yearly review, you have that in place too. So starting, I think there's kind of a spectrum there depending mm-hmm. on what kind of company you're walking into. Yeah. So what policies would you say are the most important? Yeah. Um, I say this, I think everyone thinks, oh, policies, it's just another thing to have. But when you are taken to court, if you are ever taken to court, which I hope you are not, um, I have been a corporate representative many times. And the first thing that they ask you, because there's always a claim, it's either discrimination, sexual harassment, whatever the you know, category is, they ask you, what training policies or procedures do you have in place that could have helped this employee make a better decision? And there's nothing worse than not being able to point directly to that policy. So if you can't think of what policies to start with, think of what would I really hate answering questions about if I didn't have a policy, which I know sounds crazy, but you know, so the first things that come to mind, anti-discrimination and harassment, um, you know, that includes sexual harassment. I would say even workplace violence. Um, I would say social media policy, because again, that is so a part of our lives now. Um, And then even anti-retaliation, because let's say you give someone a coaching or counseling, and then they take it out on their team because they talk to your boss, you know, you never want that either. So I would start with those um, kind of the big categories and and then figuring it out from there. But again, you, you know, I think part of this is thinking, not just what have I seen at my company, but what would I not feel comfortable that people would know what to do and put start with policies there. On that note, would you recommend just the basics of a handbook? Yeah, I go back and forth on this because, you know, coming from a very large company, handbook was what we lived and, you know, it was our, our Bible almost, you know, anything that could go wrong, you could point to the handbook. There was a yearly sign off and all that. I think if you're going into a company where there is none of that structure, a handbook can feel daunting. It can feel like, oh gosh, are we putting our employees in a box? That just feels so much. So I I mean, where I am in this journey is we're doing, you know, policies one by one. We announce them, we talk through kind of high level, and then we post them on our employee hub. And, and that's where we've started. Do I think we'll get to an employee handbook? Probably. You know, when you get to up to like 10, 10 11 policies, it's just easier to put it in an employee handbook. But I, I do think, again, kind of assessing where your company is and your leadership team. If their gut reaction is no, I wouldn't push it. It's just not where I want to, you know, burn my bridge down over something, whether it's a handbook or just separate policies. Yeah, 
And for somebody that's listening, that's maybe in the same shoes as you, Jennifer, that they're kind of maybe just recently started at a company that let's say has approximately 50 to 100 employees. They're kind of starting from scratch from a policies perspective, and maybe they don't have experience writing Mm -hmm. policies. Any recommendations for them on resources to reach out to in order to just figure out where to start and um, Mm -hmm. get some support? Yeah, I would say uh, Google is your best friend. I mean, Google, Etsy, there's policies everywhere that you can look at. I would say my one caution there is make sure that you're looking into your state specific. Um, If you are functioning out of one state, there's usually a lot of great information on the state website about specific requirements. Um, And when in doubt, go off California's policies because they're usually the most stringent and have all of the nuances. So I would, that's kind of my, my key takeaway is if when in doubt, follow California and you'll be good. (laughs) That was literally the question I was about to ask Jess. So I'm glad you, you asked that. Um, I have a question on when you go to start building these policies, some of them are probably pretty black and white if it's Mm. compliance things, but then there's also, some areas of gray when it comes to whether it's social media policy. And I'm, I'm curious how you work with the executive team or the leadership team to define these policies when often maybe they don't feel the same way as UNHR and like, is yeah. there, how's the back and forth discussion look like and how do you help facilitate those conversations to make sure that the policies cover what you intend to cover? Yeah, so I usually start, I do my research on the back end, like what is the state litigation? What is the framework that I would recommend? Because if I go into the meeting and they're like, we have no idea, run with it, you decide. You want to have something ready. You don't want to be unprepared. But I think the other side, if they're struggling with, I don't know, I don't care about social media. It is what it is. I ask them the question, okay, what would cause a gut reaction from you if you saw me posting something on social media? what would make you want to fire me? I mean, I hate to be that blunt, but, um, you know, and and a lot of times it's, oh, if you posted our internal numbers or what's coming up on projects or information that shouldn't be released. Okay, great. Then we know it's proprietary information, a confidentiality statement, forward-looking statements, things like that. If it's, we don't want you um, talking about pay. Well, you know, then that's another conversation because you can't really, you know, there's some uh, state litigation that prevents us from limiting that. So I think providing some guidelines to say, okay, well, here's how people could talk about pay and we couldn't, you know, here's what we can do, things like that. I think really figuring out what is their gut reaction to social media, because everybody has one, and then figuring out what does that look like from from your perspective and and framing it up there. I also think it's always good to start in any policy with an all-encompassing statement. And while in trainings you can give examples, I recommend not putting examples in your policies because the more specific you get in your policies, the less likely you are going to be to hold someone accountable or redirect or have a conversation because you've only given specific examples. So I Mm -hmm. think examples are for trainings. And then policies keep them broad unless you have something very specific that absolutely cannot be put out there. To build upon that, too, you know, most companies, even at that size, have a mission statement and they usually have some values. And so I think going back to the mission statement and the company's values can also be a really great tie into saying, like, you're indicating this is important to you, but you don't have a policy around it to enforce it if something goes awry. 
Absolutely. And and to your point, framing everything in the policy around them. So, you know, let's say, I don't know, for example, your one of your values is to have a positive mindset. Well, if you're posting on social media about everybody that you hate at the company, framing it up as, hey, this does not align with our value of having a positive mindset as a, and using that as a coaching opportunity. So I think it's, you know, it doesn't have to be do not do this, do not do that. It can be in the spirit of having a positive mindset. We always want to make sure we exhibit that online and in our company culture, something like that. I think you can always reframe it to your point to align to what you stand for as a company, as opposed to a list of don't do this and that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it just reinforces that your values and your mission are just something you have posted up on a poster board in your office, that they are things that you know, the leadership team reflects back on, they're built into the policies and or handbook if the company is at that stage. Um, it's used in coaching and training and development, as you indicated as well. And uh, you bring up a great point that I want to really, really hone in on is if your leadership team is not bought into whatever you're proposing, don't do it. I mean, if they're not bought into a specific part, don't do it because you are not going to have that part of the everyday conversation. It's just like values and mission. If you put be a kind person up there and then they're jerks in all their meetings, well, of course, everybody's going to see through that. So I think it's really important that you are aligned on how to talk about it and what does this look like and not just having them defer to HR on everything because that doesn't really solve the problem. So on on the training aspect, so you, we roll out these policies, everything's good there. Now we need to, whether it's get people to sign off or train them on these policies. Is there any recommendations you have on on the training aspect of this? Yeah, I think the minute you hear training, you hear money. <laughs> and that doesn't have to be the case. It can be as simple as, hey, everybody, we're going to jump on a webinar real quick. I'm going to run through this policy, and then I'm going to give you three real-life examples of what I've seen this look like and why the policy would help us in this situation. It can be that simple. It doesn't need – and then you just track your attendance. Like, hey, who was all was on this? Everybody sign off on the policy. I think it can be that simple. Um you know, you don't have to make it complicated. And and it's just about helping people see how this applies to them. Because if yeah. you're not in HR, you know, you think, oh, God, I have to sign off on this policy again. I would never harass someone. I would never discriminate. But there may be a situation where you don't mean to, and it comes off to the other person that way. And so I think always just being aware and having at least that pause moment of, oh, hey, I'm having this conversation. This feels similar to the one Jennifer mentioned when we were on that webinar. Maybe I should pause this and seek partnership. Even if it just causes that, I think that is, that's great. That's all you want. And also too, I I think that Jennifer's recommendation is incredible, especially for companies that are super budget conscious. But Mm -hmm. I do feel like there are a lot more third-party companies now too that are coming out with relatively affordable you know, like off the shelf, anti-harassment, you know, bias training, like all of those kind of fundamental yes. things that companies usually want to kind of rely on. And then you can pitch it because it becomes 
automated. It's less of a paper oh. process because people can sign off electronically and et cetera, et cetera. But yes, I mean, depending on the situation that you're in and if the company is under some tight budget constraints, Jennifer's suggestion is perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think to your point there, there's, I mean, heck, YouTube, TED Talks, there's tons of stuff out there that is easily accessible. And maybe it's, you know, maybe you don't do it all in one webinar, but you have little bite-sized learnings that you do once a month or whatever the case is. There's always, you know, ways to do it without feeling like you have to dump a bunch of money into something. Yeah, you don't have to go out and curate your own content, right? Absolutely you do it all, not. You do it all yourself. So Jennifer, the one piece I think is important for us to discuss is just the timing and or maybe the ongoing cadence is maybe a better way to describe it as it pertains to compliance and specifically training. We've talked a lot about these smaller size companies and you know, usually in those types of situations, those companies have pretty... Um, uh, you know, robust growth strategies, and they might be doing a lot of hiring and onboarding. So what would be your recommendation to um, an HR person of one or two that is supporting an organization at that size that's scaling? And how do I keep up with the compliance as we're in mm-hmm. growth mode? Yeah, I think first, um, it's really easy when you are small to want to do it yourself, because it's easier, you can jump on, you can hey, let's get on a quick orientation call. Um, But you're not going to be able to do that. And so whatever you start with, think, can this be automated and how? That is always the first place I go. Um, Yearly compliance is the best catch-all because you can then point to one time in the year when everyone either gets an update on changes or a review of what's expected, anything like that. So I think um, making sure you have some time frame agreed upon with you and the leadership team of what does that yearly compliance looks like. Most people do January just because that's the easiest. And then I think from an employee onboarding perspective, again, automation is key. Um, So whether that's in their new hire orientation, you're an automated email with your policies and procedures that goes to them and then, you know, they send back a signed copy and any questions. I mean, it can be anything from that simple to when you have their, you know, you have a call when they're one month in, making sure you've reviewed it. But again, I think anything you can automate because you're going to get so caught up in everything else and, you know, from employee relations investigations to cop strategy strategy to heck, benefits RFPs. I mean, there's just so much that you cannot anticipate and this will be the thing that falls off your plate. It it just will. So automation and if you can establish an annual compliance to hold yourself accountable, I think those are the best things you can do. Yeah, I think that's great. And also kind of going back to your earlier comment about if you always uh, just reference uh, what California's requirements are, you're likely to uh, remain in compliant because, you know, not all states require um, revisiting all all types of compliance trainings on an annual basis, but some do. So if you mm-hmm. are on just an annual cadence, then you're confident that you're always checking the box, regardless of the state that you may employ, you know, folks yeah. in. And and with all of this, I think the most important thing is just thinking, you know, to put it in perspective, think of your most different coworker and how you grew up and the way that you communicate there's probably things that you have different perspectives on. So making sure that there's one source of truth 
about how we conduct ourselves because everybody's different. Even if you grew up next door to somebody, they're going to have something different than you are. And so you cannot assume that everybody is going to function the same way. So how do we have standard rules of engagement? It's the same as, hey, no emails after 6 p.m. I think of it the same way as as any, you know, rules that you have at your company. So, Yeah. And then, you know, while we're on the topic of training, what uh, suggestions, if any, do you have just around like keeping it light and easy? You know, I, yeah. I personally having haven't been in H- HR for over 18 years now, you know, I've I've experienced two very significant different experiences mm-hmm. One where you're sitting and you're watching a video that was probably taped in 1975 mm-hmm. and wearing really dated clothes and you know, you may or may not have to take a quiz at the end of it. And it's really dry to something that's maybe a little bit more interactive. So especially when you're maybe at the stage that you are right now, where there isn't a lot of funds, you know, any suggestions that you have at that stage to sort of keep things interesting and engaging, yet still meeting the basic minimum requirements? I think making it relevant. So putting it in terms of what they're dealing with every day. You know, I can't tell you, we've all been through those trainings where you basically turn the volume all the way down and hope there's not a quiz at the end. I mean, heck, I'm an HR and I've done it It, because you got stuff to do. But so I think when you're doing any training, make it relevant to them. Put it in the context of what their day is like. You know, if they're customer facing, hey, what would you do if a customer said this to you or you know, your teammate said this. I think that's always the best because all of these things can feel so structured, but in reality, there's a million different ways that someone can be harassed. There is a million different ways that someone can feel like they're being discriminated against. Um, And so the more ways that you can kind of show people what that looks like, the better. Because then then again, it creates that pause moment for them, which is what the goal is. In the conversation or in the situation, they have that moment of, okay, maybe I should stop and take a partner. Or maybe this is not going the way I think it should. And and let me just reach out. That's That's all you're asking for. We've kind of focused our conversation on like anti-harassment, anti-discrimination, social media policies, but let's maybe talk briefly about some of the other kind of basic compliance related items, like just to maybe give a couple examples, like job descriptions, Mm. things of that nature. So what other kind of foundational items, especially in those early stages, would you also recommend that somebody maybe kind of put higher on their priority list in order to prevent risk for the company or themselves personally? I think job descriptions, that's, that is a great call out. Um, and, and it's not just for hiring. Um, you know, let's say someone comes forward and says, Hey, I didn't get this promotion. You gave it to Jennifer. That's unfair. Well, a job description could really help you there. Um, It could lay out the guidelines of what that job is, why they are or are not qualified. So what is the role in job descriptions? I always focus on what is the role and what are the qualifications? If you can do that, that's great. Um, And then I think that also helps people um, stay accountable. I think if you can implement some type of comp review cycle, and even if it's just something really basic, like we review compensation every year in September, I think that's a great place to start. It doesn't have to be formal. Uh, Performance review, when do those happen? Um, What is the process for reporting a concern? I think that is one that kind of everyone's like, oh, you just go to HR. But 
Do you text? Do you call? Do you email? Do you do all three? Do you report it on social media and then hope they see it? I, I think that's kind of a, a good one. So how do you report a concern? What if you have a concern with your manager? What do you do? Um, that's a big one. Job descriptions. And then anything that is cyclical that happens every year, I always think just putting that in writing is a great way to you know get communication out there. I want to go back just a little bit because I, I wrote down a question, but I didn't want to interrupt. When we talked about making sure that things remained up to date. Mm. So on, on in my role, we have contracts that references a link and it references mm-hmm. that this link w- is is constantly updated and it covers that. So I'm curious yes. if when something changes, do you have to send that out to everybody for sign off or when you build these policies, can you build in something like a dynamic uh, statement or a dynamic link that just says, hey, this this changes, but it covers us in the event that it does change? Or do you have to have people sign off every time? I, I think you can do a. I wouldn't have everybody sign off every time unless there's something specific that happens in that state that requires okay. a sign off. Like there have been things in California where they have said, we need, we are cha- pay transparency, the, you know, things like that, that are specific okay. to that state. I would say either a dynamic link or a simple disclaimer at the bottom that says we, f- we always follow state specific guidelines. If it is okay. not specifically outlined in this policy, please refer to the state website. I think that is a simple statement you can put in the bottom. Okay. Um, uh, realizing that you cannot, I mean, it is literally impossible to stay up with all the state well, changes. Well, that's why I had so. asked, yeah. Maybe that was an obvious question, but me not being well, directly in HR, no. I didn't know. And I think if there is, a, a perfect example is California. And and do I recommend if you're going to implement an employee handbook to do a general employee handbook and then do a California supplement? Probably, just because mm-hmm. there's so many little nuances there. And people in California know their rights. It's so interesting to me. They know the ins and outs of the law better than I do, to be honest. And so I think it's important that if you have a state like California that you function in a lot, having a specific supplement for them to refer to. So your total employee handbook, your total policy, and then a California specific, a Washington, Vermont, Oregon, Illinois, whatever those are, specific supplement that's just an extra document that says you can access state-specific laws here, Okay. And then it's, and then you're updating those as opposed to the whole policy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then I know we're we're getting short on time, but I was just curious. Actually, this is probably for both of you. Um, have you looked at so chat is a GPT? Is that the new? Mm-hmm. So is that has anybody tried to just write a ask it to write a policy and and does it work and can is it in compliance? I compliance don't know, but I'll tell you what, it's a heck of a tool to get in there. You can say, write me a discrimination policy yeah. for California and it'll give you something pretty good from a structure perspective. If nothing else, it gives you structure to start with. So let's say you're going into that executive meeting. They call, they send you a note an hour before, hey, can you bring this policy? And you have no idea where to even start. A great, great resource to start with, like, how do I frame this out? What are the things I need to at least talk to them about? Would I say it's the best place to have it as the end all be all? Probably not. But again, great resource. We should get uh, our employment attorney on to discuss that because it's it's been a topic that's been going around, and I'm, I'm oh, curious. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Well, just well, before, we, yeah, yeah. before we wrap things up, I just want to go back on two items that you had mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. Jennifer, regarding my question about other kind of foundational compliance related items. So um, you talked about like, how do I communicate that I feel like I've been mistreated? Who, who mm-hmm. do I go to? I'm curious what your take is on how important it is to have some sort of a confidential hotline or email address. So that's question number one, and then I've got to follow up to that. I think it's important. Um, I, I actually think it's very important f- at the beginning when you come in, because let's be honest, like when you're coming into a small company, nobody knows you. Nobody knows who you are. Nobody knows that you are can be trusted. And, and this is scary for them. Someone has treated them in a way that they feel is wrong. And it's their boss. It's their boss's boss. And they need their job. They need a paycheck, whatever the case is. So I think it is very important to some have some type of anonymous way to report. And then on the other side, as you get bigger, not everybody's going to know you. So having a standard process there, anonymous, and then reporting through you are very important. Yeah, I would agree. Um, And then the second piece, you talked a little bit about the importance of cycles, like a comp cycle and a performance review cycle. Specific to the performance reviews, I wanted to talk a bit about that because I think there continues to be sort of two sets of uh, parties when it comes to Mm. performance reviews. One of like, we want to get away from this. We don't find it to be helpful. It's a ton of work. And then others that are like, yeah, it's all those things, but it also provides a lot of value, creates structure. Mm -hmm. It's a good performance management tactic. It helps employees have at least one formal conversation throughout the year where they can understand how they're performing, et cetera, et cetera. So what would you recommend, especially maybe if you're partnering with an organization that's more in the camp of these are really time consuming, we don't want to do them, they're too formal, knowing Mm -hmm. how important it is from a perspective. I, I would start by seeking to understand what about it is time consuming. Is it the process, the typing of the email, is it the putting it in a system? Because I think there's there's the system side of it, which tends to be very daunting. And I've solved that by, hey, here's a template for below expectations meets expectations exceeds for each of your part. Plug in your, you know, two things here. I think that's a quick solve. I think the root of those usually are that people don't feel like they have the tools to have those conversations, because if they're a great performer, you're giving them good praise all the time. If they're a bad performer, you're probably giving them feedback a lot. It's those middle people, which is a majority, that they don't feel comfortable having the conversation with. And again, I think there's a spectrum of leaders on that. So I think it starts by what is holding you back on that? How often are you already giving formal feedback? Because everybody thinks they're giving feedback all the time, but formal structured feedback where they come prepared with what they have done and you come prepared. And then I think figuring out, okay, what is the right answer to that? Am I going to say an annual performance review is always the case? No, no, it's, it's not. It might not work for you. Um, but can I say that you as a leader need to figure out what your team, you expect of your team from a formal feedback perspective? Yes. If that's every quarter, I want you to have a formal email documented and you talk about it with them. Cool. Great. You don't need to put it in a system. It is what it is. And I think as we move away from tying merit to comp, uh, compensation to performance reviews, those become easier because no one's going to have an honest conversation 
if they like this person and their money's tied to it. It it just isn't feasible. So I think if you can decouple them, it becomes a little easier also, just from a management perspective of figuring out who's going to get paid what. So that might be something else to consider, not to throw a wrench in there for you. But. <laughs> no, I think that's good input. And then just to maybe build upon that, addressing kind of the elephant in the room as it pertains to a manager who, and just bringing this back to compliance, a manager who's not great about providing constructive criticism and is maybe um, inflating how well an employee has mm-hmm. done on a performance review. And then shortly after says, this employee isn't working out. I want to let them go. And now you have this documentation that like they were meeting, maybe in some cases exceeding expectations. And now you have this potential, you know, legal situation on your hands. So I think it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's important with performance reviews to have to, and I'll bring this back to a comment you made earlier is to have your leadership team really understand the importance of good performance management and be coached well in that area and feel comfortable and having an environment where it is comfortable to provide um, and give feedback when it isn't always positive. Yeah. And I, I think, Everybody wants to do the right thing. But again, you know, you give them a raving review because of the recency factor. They closed a big deal. They had a great quarter, whatever it is. And then they tick you off and you want to fire them. Well, it's it's not that simple. And it's you're human. It's human nature to say this person's not performing. And I think it's our jobs as HR to say, okay, how did we get from point A to point B? What's been done in between? And and really helping. I'm never going to say no as an HR person. I'm not. I, that's just how I function. And I think it's important to say, we'll get to a yes, but I'm going to give you all of the range of consequences or reactions or whatever can happen here. And then you get to decide. And I think that's important to hold us accountable, to hold them accountable, everybody in between. Yeah, thousand percent. Well, good. Let, thanks for letting me sneak in those uh, two follow-up questions. So Mike, you want to close us out? Because um, we are out of time. Can you tell our audience, Jennifer, maybe how they can get in touch with you? Are you on social media platforms? Because oftentimes there's people listening and maybe if you don't mind, maybe they can reach out via LinkedIn Absolutely. and you know, pick your brain and just add you to their network. Yeah, I think LinkedIn is probably the best way to get me. I'm kind of on there all the time. Um, and I would love to help you out. If you have any questions or concerns, reach out to me there. Um, it's Jennifer Watson. My maiden name is Newville. And like Nancy, E-U-V, like Virginia, I-L-L-E. So you can find me either way. Um, and I would just, you know, if you have any questions or concerns, love to start the conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO. Help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That's podcast at tcsharm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, please use code WHATTHEHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.